0: Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. Hello, my friends. I find it amusing where my mind goes when I make these episodes. I start working on one and then become distracted by something I read, and then work on another completely different topic for the episode. Some small detail to let me obsess over, just like this episode. This started off as an episode on Edgar Casey, yes, I said only in desperate times would I go over him, so I guess I hit the desperate phase. I realize how much Edgar Casey is still cited as a source. The Bimney Road, ooh, I'm still slowly working on him, and I gained a fraction of respect for him. I am still not very impressed with his viewings, but I'll give credit where it's due. He didn't try to make money off of his psychic powers. Perhaps... Another author was equally as foreseen, my boy Plato. Recently, we have a new TV series that branches off The Lord of the Rings called The Ring of Power. What would you do if you had a ring that could turn you invisible? Plato's book, The Republic, ponders just that question with the Ring of Gyges. What? Did Tolkien just rip off Plato, or was Plato psychic and foresaw that Tolkien would write it about 2,000 years after? Did Plato know about what Herodotus wrote about the Ring of Gyges prior to his thought experiment? I know, I know. I have more questions than answers. But I think it goes a long way, as it goes with classical studies. For this episode, I'm going to go over how some of Plato's philosophy and where the Critias and the Timaeus fares in his work. There is so much that needs to be known before understanding these two screenplays. I doubt many will ever really know. As always, my sources are linked in my episode description, as well as I have linked the Critias and Timaeus as well. The Sovereignty of Lydia, which had belonged to the dynasty of the Heraclids, passed into the family of Croesus the Myrmidans the following way. Cangeles, the king of Sardis, the Greeks call him. Myrcilius was descended from Alcaeus, son of Heracles. His father was Merceus, and he was the last of the Heraclids to reign at Sardes. Canda Ulysses conceived a passion for his own wife, and thought she was the most beautiful woman on earth. To this fancy of his, there was an unexpected sequel. In the king's bodyguard was a fellow he particularly liked whose name was Gyges, son of Daeclius. With him, Canna not only discussed the most important business, but even used to make him listen to his eulogies of his wife's beauty. One day, the king, who was doomed to a bad end, said to Gyges, It appears you don't believe me when I tell you how lovely my wife is. Well, a man always believes his eyes better than his ears. So do as I tell you, contrive to see her naked. Gyges gave a cry of horror. Master, he said, what an improper suggestion. Do you tell me to look at the queen when she has no clothes on? No, no, off with her shirt, off with her shame. You know what they say of women. Let us learn from experience." Right and wrong were distinguished long ago, and I tell you one thing that is right, a man should mind his own business. I do not doubt that your wife is the most beautiful of women, so for goodness sake, do not ask me to behave like a criminal." Thus he did his utmost to decline the king's invitation, because he was afraid of what might happen if he accepted it. The king, however, told him not to distress himself. There is nothing to be afraid of, he said. Either from me or my wife. I am not laying a trap for you. And as for her, I promise she will do you no harm. I'll manage so she doesn't even know that you have even seen her. Look, I will hide you behind the open door of our bedroom. My wife will follow me into bed. Near the door, there is a chair. She will put her clothes on it as she takes them off, one by one. You will be able to watch her with perfect ease. Then, while she's walking away from the chairs towards the bed, with her back to you, slip away through the door and mind she doesn't catch you. Gaiges, since he was unable to avoid it, consented and when bedtime came, Kanayutilis brought him to the room. Presently the queen arrived and Gaiges watched her walk in and put her clothes on the chair. Then, just as she had turned her back and was going to bed, he slipped softly out of the room. Unluckily, the queen saw him. At once she realized what her husband had done, but she did not betray the shame she felt by screaming or even let it appear that she had noticed anything. Instead, she silently resolved to get her revenge. For the moment, she kept her mouth shut and did nothing. But at dawn, the next morning, she sent for Gyges after preparing the most trustworthy of our servants for what was to come. There was nothing unusual in being asked to attend upon by the queen, so Gaijiz answered the summons without any suspicion that she knew what had occurred the previous night. Gaijiz, she said as soon as he presented himself, there are two courses open to you, and you may take your choice between them. Kill Kanadulis and seize the throne, with me as your wife or die yourself on the spot, so that never again may your blind obedience to the king tempt you to see what you have no right to see. One of you must die, either my husband, the author of this wicked plot, or you, who have outraged propriety by seeing me naked." For a time Gyges was too astonished to speak. At last he found words and begged the queen not to force him to make such a difficult choice. But it was no good. He saw that he was faced with no alternative, either murdering his master or of being murdered himself. He made his choice to live. Tell me, he said, since you drive me against my will to kill the king, how shall we set on him? We shall attack him when he is asleep, was the answer, and on the very spot where he showed me to you naked all was made ready for the attempt. The queen would not let Gyges go or give him a chance of escaping the dilemma. Either Candelui's or he must die. Night came and he followed her into the bedroom. She put a knife into his hand and hid him behind the same door as before. Then, when Candelui's was asleep, he crept from behind the door and struck. Thus Gyges usurped the throne and married the queen. That was an account from Herodotus in the Histories. I am delighted, he replied, to hear you say so, and shall I begin by speaking, as I proposed of the nature and the origin of justice. They say that to do injustice is, by nature, good to suffer injustice, evil, but that the evil is greater than the good. So when men have both done and suffered injustice, and they have experience of both, not being able to avoid one and obtain the other, they think that they had better agree among themselves to have neither. Hence, there arise laws and mutual covenants, and only that which is ordained by law is termed by them lawful and just. This they affirm to be the origin and nature of justice. It is a mean or compromise between the best of all, which is to do injustice and not be punished, and the worst of all which is to suffer injustice without the power of retaliation. Injustice, being at the middle point between the two, is tolerated not as good, but as the lesser evil, and by reason of inability of men to do injustice. For no man, who is worthy to be called a man, would ever submit to such an agreement if he were able to resist. He would be mad if he did. Such is the received account, Socrates, of the nature and origin of justice. Now that those who practice justice do so involuntarily, and because they have not the power to be unjust, will best appear if we imagine something of this kind. Having given both to the just and the unjust power to do as they will, let us watch and see whether desire will lead them, then we shall discover in the very act the just and unjust man to be proceeding along the same road, following their interest, which all natures deem to be their good, and are only diverted to the path of justice by the force of law, the liberty which we are supposing may be most completely given to them. In the form of such power as is said to have been possessed by Gyges, the ancestor of Boetius the Lydian. According to tradition, Gyges was a shepherd in the service of the king of Lydia. There was a great storm and there was an earthquake that made an opening in the earth at the place where he was feeding his flock. Amazed at the sight, he descended into the opening where among other marvels he beheld a hollow brazen horse, having doors, at which he stooping and looking in saw a dead body of a stature, as appeared to him, to be more than human, and having nothing on but a gold ring. This he took from the finger of the dead and reascended. Now the shepherds met together according to custom, that they might send their monthly report about the fox to the king. Into their assembly he came, having the ring on his finger, and, as he was sitting among them, he chanced to turn the colette of the ring inside his hand, when instantly he became invisible to the rest of the company, and they began to speak of him, as if he were no longer present. He was astonished at this, and again, touching the ring, he turned the colette outwards and reappeared. He made several trials of the ring, and, always with the same result, when he turned the cullet inwards, he became invisible. Outwards, he reappeared. Whereupon, he contrived to be the chosen one of the messengers, who were sent to the court. Where, as soon he arrived, he seduced the queen, and with her help conspired against the king, and slew him, and took the kingdom. Suppose now that there were two such magic rings, and the just on one of them and the unjust the other no man can be imagined to be of such an iron nature that he would stand fast in justice no man would keep his hands off what was not his own when he could safely take what he liked out the market or go out into houses and lie with anyone at his pleasure or kill or release from prison whom he would and in all respects be like a god among men Then the actions of the just would be the actions of the unjust, they would both come at last to the same point. And this we may truly affirm to be the great proof that a man is just, not willingly or because he thinks that justice is any good to him individually, but out of necessity. For wherever anyone thinks he can safely be unjust, there he is, unjust. For all men believe in their hearts that injustice is far more profitable to the individual than justice, and he who argues, as I have been supposing, will say that they are right. If you could imagine anyone obtaining this power of becoming invisible and never doing any wrong or touching what was another's, he would be thought by the onlookers on to be the most wretched idiot although they would praise him to one another's faces and keep up appearances with one another from a fear that they too might suffer injustice. Enough of this. Now, if we were to form a real judgment of the life of the just and the unjust, we must isolate them. There is no other way. How could this isolation be affected? I answer, let the unjust man be entirely unjust and the just man entirely just. Nothing is to be taken away from either of them, and both are to be perfectly furnished for the work of their respective lives. First, let the unjust be like other distinguished masters of craft, like the skillful pilot or physician who knows intuitively his own powers and keeps within their limits, and who, if he fails at any point, is able to recover himself. So let the unjust make his unjust attempts in the right way, and lie hidden if he means to be great in his injustice. He who is found out is nobody. For the highest reach of injustice is to be deemed when you are not. Therefore I say in the perfectly unjust man we assume the most perfect injustice. There is to be no deduction, but we must allow him, while doing most taken a false step, he must be able to recover himself. He must be one who can speak with effect, if any of his deeds come to light, and who can force his way where force is required, his courage and strength, and command of money and friends. And at his side let us place the just man in his nobleness and simplicity, wishing, as Alicaceus says, to be not to seem good. There must be no seeming, for if he seem to be just, then he will be honored and rewarded. And then we shall not know whether he is just for the sake of justice, or for the sake of honors and rewards. Therefore let him be clothed in justice only, and have no other covering, and he may be imagined in a state of life the opposite of the former. Let him be the best of all men, and let him be thought the worst. Then he will have been put to the proof. And we shall see whether or not he will be affected by the fear of infamy and its consequences. And let him continue, thus, to the hour of death, being just, and seeming to be unjust. When both have reached the uttermost extreme, the one of justice and the other of injustice, let judgment be given which of them is the happier of the two. As you can see, Plato is full of thought experiments. If you had a ring that can make you invisible, would you be just or unjust? Would you choose to be a superhero or a supervillain? Thankfully, Plato did not foresee the age of the internet where people can put on a ring of invisibility. They can create anonymous accounts and say whatever they want under the guise that they cannot be seen. We have watched firsthand as people, invisibly, stated extreme views and found others who believe the same. Do the unjust feel as if they are just? I like to think that every person who behaves unjustly believes that they are doing the right thing. I like to think that they use excuses to persuade themselves that they are the good ones, no matter how vile their actions are. This episode was not meant to be a philosophy lesson. I guess the weeks on listening of lectures on Plato has worn off on me. The point of the Ring of Gyges was to show you what genre Plato's screenplays were. We hear the name like Steven Spielberg, James Cameron, Alfred Hitchcock, Jordan Peele, and so many others. They have their own style of producing a film. Plato wasn't any different. People had a certain expectation when they were to go see a Plato produced and written by Plato. When Plato describes Athens before the flood of Deucalion, he saw Athens as a perfect or just society. Of course, if it were perfect and just, Zeus wouldn't have sent forth a flood to wipe them all out. It could also be that just was different at the time of Deucalion and during Plato's time. It is because of Plato's writing style that most scholars believe that Atlantis was an allegory meant to propose a hypothetical scenario and not an actual place. I know I've said it before and I'll reiterate that I want to believe that Atlantis was real, so therefore I choose to disregard the scholars who get paid to know Plato for a living. That is a completely emotional-based decision and has no logic to it. Just like the Ring of Gyges, Herodotus gave us a history as he knew it. Plato took that story and expanded, changed some of it, but it was still a basis and presumed fact. Perhaps I am guilty of hubris, as I want to believe that the scholars are wrong. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, Hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least, reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9pm. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you, it's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. It's estimated that Edgar Casey made over 21,000 predictions in his lifetime. He is often proclaimed as a miracle worker, prophet, and even America's most successful clairvoyant. However, Edgar Cayce's predictions were wrong more often than they were correct. In one of Casey's earlier predictions, he stated that 1933 would be a very good year. This prediction was way off base, as in 1933, Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany, Shortly after his appointment, he dissolved the German parliament, which marked the beginning of the Nazi rampage throughout Germany and across Europe. In the US, the Great Depression was in a full swing when the global economy hit rock bottom in 1933. According to Casey, a large earthquake would also hit the state of California, causing it and the Baja Peninsula to slide into the Pacific sometime during the 1960s.